this week's episode is an especially fun one, as well as being um, a rather interesting perspective into the male and female gaze when it comes to literature and storytelling. We are going to take a deep dive into how being a male or female author does have an impact on the characters that we write, especially in how we write them. And we're going to do this through the eyes of Medusa. You're listening to The Writer's Workshop, a weekly podcast about writing, publishing, and the art of storytelling. I'm Nikki Aubergat, book editor, writer, and cultural anthropologist. Welcome back to another episode of The Writer's Workshop. And I gotta tell you, I've, I've been really excited about this week's uh, podcast episode because this is one of the first of many, many to come where we're going to actually take a look at a very well-known story and kind of pull it apart and see, you know, what can we learn from it in terms of how we write our books. This is definitely going into the character side of things and looking at how we write them through the male and slash or female gaze. Now, I do want to say this, like, I understand that, you know, today we are a lot more broadly accepting of all different sorts of identities. Some identify as male, some identify as female, some of us identify as neither, some of us are both, you know, like, whatever we identify as, there is still a gaze that occurs. And the male versus female is one that has been long existing since time began, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> we see this in all over. We see this all over uh, ancient manuscripts, modern manuscripts. Um, and so it's something that's definitely worth looking into. I mean, heck, um, I don't know if you've been on social media when, uh, or oh, you probably have, but you remember when a Wonder Woman came out, the, the new one with, uh, Oh my gosh, her name is escaping me right now, but Gal Gadot. There we go, Gal Gadot with Gal Gadot. And um, there was this huge celebration at the costuming and the storytelling and how you could tell the director is a woman. You could tell the costume designer was a woman. You could just see it was all through the female gaze. And in that regards, a lot more accurate to how Wonder Woman and the mascara and everything probably would be because, you know, women. So that's a, that's a good example. And then um, another fun example, taking Wonder Woman as well, is the, the film Justice League. Still has some scenes of the mascara. Still involves Wonder Woman. Still involves the Amazons at certain points, action points. The costume designer was male. And that was something I saw pulled up on uh, Tumblr and, and Pinterest and stuff. People were like, oh, you can tell. You can tell when they had a female costume designer versus a male costume designer. The armor was designed very differently. The costumes are very differently. Look it up. It's really, it's really interesting to see like a very visual aspect of a male versus female gaze. And, and it's not like we do this intentionally. It's a very subconscious level of, of perspective that comes out when we create. 
this is really fascinating. Um, because Medusa is an ancient, ancient, ancient legend. And, um, probably for me, at least probably one of the most intense examples of male versus female when it comes to perspective in storytelling. Now, there are so many books and so many academic articles, so many publications, um, museums have written about this. Um, so what I have done for today is pulled up a few of really rather easy to read articles that I'll put in the link, I'll, I'll link up and put in the uh, description for today's episode. Um, but also, I, <laughs> I pulled up Wikipedia for the overview of the legend because Medusa is a mythological character whose story has been told and retold and retold and retold so many different times that it changes. The most popular version was written in Metamorphoses by the Roman poet Ovid. That's the one we'll see like Clash of the Titans reference, uh, film, sorry, the movie Clash of the Titans. Um, even Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, you know, all these different, you know, popular movies and books today typically reference Ovid. So for sake of time, as well as sake of, of clarity and just kind of keeping this easy, because like I said, it, it goes deep in academia. Um, I pulled up the Wikipedia article on Medusa. And just to give you a brief refresher of the legend that we know. Hey, aspiring authors, I wanted to take a moment to ask you if this phrase sounds familiar. I have a story idea. And you see it so clearly in your mind. The hero or heroine, the action adventure, the romance, the mystery, even the movie trailer promoting your amazing novel because you know this is going to get you those movie rights. And that's where it stays. In your mind, locked away where no one can read your incredible story. I get it. Writing is intimidating. There's all these questions like, how do I start? Where do I start? What if nobody wants to read it? Does this even make sense? I have so many ideas. Which do I go with? So many questions end with nothing being started. No drafts, no lines, no progress, and no book. I'll be real. Somewhere out there is an old computer with all my unfinished books. I have a story idea was the one phrase that made all my friends groan. Not because I'm a bad writer, quite the opposite, gonna humble brag there for a moment, <laughs> but because I never finished a single manuscript. I struggled with world building, I struggled with character development, I struggled with self-doubt, and then I became an anthropologist. Fiction begins in real life. I specialized in folklore, discovering different ways people preserve memory through storytelling. Imagine if you could turn this knowledge into characters with strong story arcs, settings that make sense to your reader and enrich the story, villains with depth and complexities, and most importantly, a finished manuscript. Mind to Manuscript is the course for you. It is perfect for you. If you have a story idea twitched in your mind, but you're unsure where to start, maybe you want to strengthen your world building skills. You have questions about dialogue, chapter formations, paragraph lengths, and way more that you may not even be able to think of right now. But ultimately, you probably really, really don't want to spend thousands of dollars on creative writing degree or a book coach. Mind to Manuscript is the perfect solution for this. And we have a boot camp this July 12th through the 17th, where you get hands-on guidance with me, 
live sessions, we're going to talk about everything. I'm going to walk you through the art and process of storytelling. This bootcamp is going to be fantastic. And it's a great way for you to get early access to this pretty epic course, if I say so myself, at 70% off. Lifetime access, 70% off the full ticket price. And it, this is a very, very limited offer, especially since the bootcamp is coming up in just a couple weeks. So join now today. You know, message me, email me, and let me know. I'll put a link in the description box as well. Join now. Enroll now. You'll enjoy a lifetime membership and access to future sessions, videos, courses. You're never going to have to pay for entry again. You're in. As a thank you for me for being one of the first people to truly help formulate the best version of this course. There's going to be live Q&A sessions for hands-on guidance throughout the boot camp and later on throughout the rest of your writing process. I am also going to give you one free novel assessment. That's usually $200 starting point. I'm going to give it to you for free again as another thank you. And because again, I can't thank you enough for joining me on this fantastic journey. You will also enjoy half off all my editing services in the future. Anytime you need a developmental edit, anytime you need a proofread, it's all half off. That includes my packages. I will give you half off everything lifetime again as a thank you. You can understand this is a very, very limited, limited offer. And I'm only giving it to a couple people. I only have about 20 seats left at this offer, this price and all these bonuses. So please message me on Instagram at Nikki Arborkit. Or email me, Nikki at NikkiAubrickett.com, so I can give you your own personal link to sign up and get ready to write July 12th through the 17th. Like I said, in the late version of the Medusa myth by Ovid in Metamorphoses, and Wikipedia quotes that as 4.794-803, he had a lot. <laughs> um, Medusa was originally a beautiful woman, but... It, I would say she's a beautiful woman and she worked in the temple of Athena. So that that's actually really important. We have a woman who is beautiful and she's just doing her job working in a temple. Poseidon, the god of the seas, sees her and he goes into the temple and has sex with her. And because of this, Athena punished Medusa by transforming her hair into snakes, by giving her, in some accounts, I'm not sure if Ova goes into this, in some accounts she has wings, um, her upper half is a woman, the bottom half is this really huge serpent, um, and in just all these different features, anytime anybody looks at her or she looks at them, they turn into stone. Um, she's just all sorts of deadly. And, and as Wikipedia summarizes really well, in most versions of the story, she was beheaded by the hero Perseus, who did so as a, as a sort of two bird, one stone thing. He was set to fetch her head by King Polydictes of Seraphis because Polydictes wanted to marry Perseus's mother. That's, that's one account. And another account, and this is really more, made more popular by Clash of the Titans, again, the film, um, he went to go get her head because he needed a way to defeat the Kraken to save Andromeda, the princess, from being eaten alive as a sacrifice because her father was dumb and 
ticked off the gods. It's this whole thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, and and the gods were really a, well aware. In, in any account that you read, the gods are supporting Perseus. Most accounts, Perseus is the uh, one of the many, 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 many uh, illegitimate sons of Zeus. And so Athena gives him a sandaled mirror, uh, sorry, mirrored shield. Hermes gives him sandals with gold wings. Hephaestus forges him a sword and Hades offers his helmet of invisibility. Um, and Perseus is able to successfully kill Medusa, take her head and go do his thing, the Kraken, where he turns the Kraken stone. Now, when he goes to Medusa's lair and he kills her, she was in her pregnancy that had resulted from having sex with Poseidon. And so when Perseus kills her, he beheads her. Pegasus is one of her children, the winged horse that bursts forth. And Creosaur is a giant wielding a golden sword. They both sprain from her body. And so even though Medusa is now dead, her head and her sight is still very much an active thing. And Perseus steals Pegasus and uses him to go back to kill the Kraken, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so you might tell, as I'm telling because I'm hearing it, I'm like, yada, 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 that's what happened. Here's why my tone kind of shifts. I'm like, yeah, 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 as, as I'm reading the summary aloud and also kind of filling in because I'm noticing here that Wikipedia did skip over some things and that being like the Kraken. Uh, <laughs> here's why I just look because that's how it was told by men. So let's break this down. And I will say, if you want a really good academic breakdown that goes really really deep because again I'm summarizing for time's sake as well as ease of just listening um Susan R. Bowers wrote a phenomenal article in 1990 Medusa and the female gaze and I will also put that information in the uh description the episode description where Bowers pointed out like she was kind of going through this mythology and she's like wait a minute there's some key things happening here. I think, you know, really begs for a deeper dive into what is actually going on. So let's rewind and pull this apart piece by piece. Medusa is a woman who is naturally beautiful. She works in a temple. She's a woman who's at her job. Some guy comes in and when men tell it, Poseidon had sex with her. But in historical storytelling, in oral folklore, when women tell the story, Poseidon raped her. And that kind of makes more sense, whereas Poseidon goes in, sees this beautiful woman at someone else's temple, and rapes her. Now, when women tell the story, it's not a punishment at all. Athena obviously sees what happens real time because that's her temple it's and in how, how temples function at the time it's kind of like a house so there are several temples there's just several vacation homes this was a main one for athena and so she would have seen what really happened and she would have been able to clearly see if medusa was a willing participant 
or non-consenting if she was raped. And most people agree, even today, there's a lot of academics who agree Medusa was raped. She had no say in this. And what, what, what could she say? Poseidon was the god of the seas. Medusa was mortal. She was a human. She had literally no chance of escaping him. And, and then there's the question of, okay, so where was Athena? Well, here's Athena. On the uh, hierarchy of the gods, Poseidon definitely outranks Athena. He is one of the originals. He is the brother of Zeus and Hades. He was eaten by their father back before time was even a thing. Um, you know, so, and Athena comes much later. She is, if I remember correctly, she is the daughter of Zeus. So this is kind of like a really weird family situation where she sees her uncle do something completely heinous, but she doesn't really have much to say or do about it. And what would she say? You know, oh my gosh, Poseidon raped one of my attendants. Um, that's not okay. Well, Zeus was worse than Poseidon. There's this joke that, you know, <laughs> you know, if Zeus just kept it in his pants, half, over half the Greek mythology we know wouldn't even have exist. I mean, Perseus would not even be a character if Zeus was, um, you know, more like Hades, who never actually <laughs> did any of that. Anyways, I digress. So what happens now in the male gaze versus a female gaze is how Medusa transforms. Men would call it a punishment. She goes from a beautiful woman into this ugly creature. Women called it a gift and a blessing. And so let's break down what Medusa's attributes and what she transforms into actually serves. First and foremost, we got to talk about the hair. Her hair goes from the silky locks that all of us pride ourselves in, and she probably had, into a bunch of snakes. Interestingly enough, men call that a horrible disfigurement. Women, even in, um, in archaeology, we find, you know, evidence women tended to celebrate that. Now, now think about it for a second. Um, I hope this has never happened to you, but it might have. And I know it's happened to me. Has anyone ever yanked on your hair in, in situations where it was not okay? <laughs> you know, I mean, usually it's not okay, but there's a few, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Okay, yeah, boom. <laughs> that's all, that's great. But you know what I mean? Like you're on a, you're on a train or a bus or gosh, in a fight with a family member or, or, you know, in the more horrible cases where, um, where rape is a very real thing, a woman's hair tends to be the thing that they grab. And so when you think about it, yeah, it's, it's horribly inconvenient to the men that Medusa's hair has now become something that could bite them and potentially poison them. I don't know if they were venomous snakes. They were just their serpents or snakes. So that's, yeah, that's enough. You know, it's enough. Her hair is alive and can bite you. But think about it. If your hair was alive and could bite people, how many times do you think anybody would actually grab on your hair or yank it or pull it or use it as a weapon against you? Literally no one. <laughs> you know, like seriously, if you can think about for just a second, even if it was just like one single giant bow constrictor on your head, how many people would be willing and bold enough to reach out and grab it as a means to yank you closer or, or do anything to you or with you? Zero. Okay. Someone might ask to pet it, but you know what I mean? Like there's, you know, people are going to shift into this 
area of consent. That is really interesting. Now, what really, what I find the most just, mm, yes, part of, of this male versus female gaze is that in and of itself, the gaze of Medusa. Horribly inconvenient and dangerous to men for Medusa to look at them. It's fantastic for Medusa. And here's, here's what I find really, really interesting about this aspect of the mythology. You know, whether, you know, did it ever actually happen in real life? I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> but I find it interesting, like, for something to be made up, this is where you really do get strong hints that it was a woman who originally created this story. Think about it for a moment. When Medusa looks at somebody, they turn into stone. They become an object. When Poseidon went into the temple and raped Medusa, he objectified her. He turned her into a thing for his own amusement and his own pleasure. So when Athena goes and transforms Medusa and gives her these attributes, one of those things is Medusa's gaze that turns everybody else into an object. It is such a literal and powerful illustration of objectifying, you know, and where Medusa now can protect herself by literally, literally turning men into objects. So then it comes down to um, another aspect that happens in the story that someone pointed out. I actually saw this in a really cool post on Pinterest, and I wish I could remember where it was. Um, where they, they pointed out, they said, you notice Medusa doesn't live in town for obvious reasons, um, but she also doesn't go out and actively kill people. She is only dangerous when men go into her home with the intent to hurt her. Because let's face it, men think she's a monster. So that's the only reason why they're going to her home. She lives in a cave. According to Ovid and according to so many other versions, Medusa at this point definitely lives in a cave or it's some sort of decrepit temple. Um, but anyway, she lives in isolation. In some accounts, she lives with her sisters. and other accounts, she doesn't. But the point is the same. She has removed herself from society as she does not go out and actively attack people. The only people who ever fall victim to her gaze or her hair or her fury or rage are those who like intentively, I'm sorry, intentionally invade her home with the purpose of harming and slash or killing her. What's even worse is that she is in full mama protective mode when Perseus arrives. So yeah, I absolutely believe that she probably fought to the, you know, the core to save her unborn children because she's pregnant. Like that was forced upon her, but she's still pregnant. She's still a mother and Perseus kills her. Like he, he uses the gifts he was given and I don't even know exactly how involved Athena was with that. But anyways... He, he uses whatever he has. He slays her. He takes her head. He kidnaps her newborn child. 
no one really knows what happens to Chrysor. I mean, there's probably some accounts, but, you know, if you're like, who's Chrysor? Exactly. We all know who Pegasus is. Heck, it's an emblem for a, or a, a say, a, a logo for a, uh, was it petrol fuel years ago? Anyways, yeah, like, we all know Pegasus. We don't know Chrysor. And we know Pegasus because he was the kidnapped baby of a murdered woman whose only crime was being raped by a, a powerful god in her, her goddess's temple. I mean, really let that sink in. Now, what's really, really neat, too, is that um, there are some who are like, okay, so cool. This Medusa is what, like, what now? A feminist icon? She's actually been a feminist icon for centuries. This is not something that has just happened um, in the dawn of like the 1960s, 70s, or even the early uh, 20th century with votes for women, or even the 1800s. This is something that has been going on since her tale was first told. Um, there's a reason why Ovid wrote about her. He's definitely not the first person to write about her. He just retold his own version, you know, kind of like fan fiction. Um, Medusa has been a feminist icon and the symbol of safety for women, for eons. Um, I am also putting a link, if I haven't mentioned already, to the metmuseum.org, uh, Medusa in Ancient Greek Art. It's really cool because they have some really cool pictures of um, different types of uh, portrayals of Medusa in Ancient Greek Art. But they also mention the architectural side. There are um, archaeological findings of Medusa's head or Medusa, yeah, Medusa's head, her face, her hair, everything being found in doorways in certain places. Um, very inobscure, very, um, in some, in some cases they're, they're kind of smaller. There is an academic suspicion that has yet to be disproven. So I'm going with it. Um, that this was done to signify that particular location as a sanctuary for women trying to escape domestic abuse. So let's say a, a woman in that village or that town or that city like Athens, for example, and Athens had a really substantial period where they just like hated women altogether. So I definitely believe this considering her relationship with Athena. Um, if, <laughs> sorry, that's a side, it's like, oh yeah, no, it was bad. Um, let's just say that you are a housewife and you're a woman who's married in Athens. You like, at that point, you have like no rights and your husband is beating the absolute crap out of you. You're fearing for your life. You're feeling, fearing for your children's lives. You know, you need a safe place to go. But here's the thing, like, where do you go? In such a patriarchal society, especially in Athens, where this is happening, um, your husband's probably well-connected in the community. You can't really just go to the authorities. They'll send you right back home. Domestic abuse is a very kind of accepted thing. And, and it's sad to say that even in the modern age, it's been a very accepted thing until most recently in the last couple decades. Anyways... So where do you go? Like, what happens? How do you save yourself from this situation without being found and sent back? When you would see the head of Medusa 
carved somewhere into the door frame or the, the pillars or whatever, the balustrades of a particular building. That meant that you could go in there and they would hide you. They would protect you. If your husband happened to go into the same building looking for you, there's no way he's going to get to you. They, 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 they'll fight for you. Um, it's very, very interesting. Um, so again, here is a very real, very literal, non-mythological example of the male versus female gaze. When men would see the head of Medusa carved into um, the architecture, they're like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? You know, or if they're aware of, of the system, they're like, Ugh, one of those houses, you know. And, and then they can't get in. The people who are utilizing her head are fighting back. They're not allowed into the sanctum, into, into this cave, so to speak. But when women would see that, they're like, yes, all right, I know where I can go if I'm ever in trouble. You know what I mean? It's very, very interesting. It goes back and forth between the two. And I also found interesting doing research for this episode how many articles were, were actually trying to denounce this aspect? Oh, no, her, her head was never used to signify a, a houses of safety or, or haven homes or whatnot for women escaping domestic abuse. And then I check who wrote that article. Always a man. Now, guys, I am not bashing you. Men have done phenomenal work in, in really celebrating women and even writing powerful uh, female characters. Uh, George R.R. R. Martin is a more contemporary example. He was even um, interviewed a couple years ago while the show Game of Thrones was really at full force. Like, how do you write such strong women? He's like, well, like, have respect for them, first of all. He's like, women have always been strong. I just retell what I've seen. You know, like, like he has such great respect. Um, but I found it interesting that the articles I was finding that were really trying to, to denounce the usage of Medusa as a symbol of safety and protection for domestic abuse victims, um, they were all written by men. So I, I really, it was, I was hard pressed to, I'm not saying that there no women contest this. There probably are some academic women who do have a different opinion, but it was very difficult to find any dissenting um, opinions on this from female um, scholars. So that was just like a, an interesting thing that, that came up too. So now that we've gone over the, the aspect of Medusa, male versus female gaze, you know, male storytelling versus female storytelling. My question for you that I really want you to consider is how are you writing your characters? Can if, if you've started your draft already, if you started your manuscript and you're able to, or maybe have somebody else ask them this, like have a friend read it. Don't go to a beta reader if it's not near published. Okay, that's the rule number one. Beta readers are much later. But like, if you just want to know, like, what is the gaze occurring here? Just have a friend read it or a family member or just someone that you trust to give you their honest opinion on, on just the aspect. If you're, if you're writing a romance, for example, or maybe, maybe it's a story that is sci-fi or historical or anything, and it involves romantic aspects. Are you intentionally or unintentionally shifting the gaze 
and maybe altering or impacting the reader's understanding and connectivity with that character based on a feminine or masculine perspective. Um, so if, if you really want to delve into like, okay, what's the difference? Romance novels, you know, those naughty, naughty books, ones written by men and the ones written by women, you will see a very, very stark difference in how characters are described. Like, that's like really stark differently. But then if you go into um, not so obvious areas, you know, is there a male versus female case? There's a couple of uh, really fantastic novels I've read on Kindle. Um, I've ordered you know, for hard copies. And it's interesting, one of my favorite ones um, from the Bargainer series by Laura Salasa, and I put that down, absolutely favorite one. The male character is always described at some point, you know, his white hair, his chiseled up. The female character, not as much, not as much, you, enough to get the basics. You have a general sense of what her hair looks like. You have a general sense of the fact that she's pretty and, and really actually like almost unearthly attractive or whatnot, but not in as much detail as the male character which I thought was really interesting. And I mean, I love the books. I had no problems with that. I love the description of Desmond. <laughs> Zero complaints. But no, like this is a, this is a book, you know, a book series that's not blatantly meant to be romance romance. It's more in the fantasy area. And again, you know, here we go. It's written by a woman and I love it. I'm, I love it. Um, I'm trying to think of other themes too, uh, where you do see... The, these little subtle things of um, how men write it versus how women write it. Now, looking at ones where we just applaud the authors. I, I know I said George R. R. Martin, Game of Thrones. He gives equal attention, description, and perspective, whether it's a man, whether it's a woman. And out of that comes a lot of just the horrific, you know, no holdbacks, no no sugarcoating anything like he is raw in how men treat women and he's raw in how women retaliate to men and that is a pattern that you will see oh my gosh I'm like as I'm saying that's like oh my gosh no there you go that's the one pattern I picked up on in the entire series is that the violence of the women even with Cersei who we can all agree by now is just like, whoa, see a therapist. Um, even Cersei, it's all reactionary. All the violent women, the worst of them to the best of them, every time violence and bloodshed and just, whoa, it's all reactionary. It's all because of some man or maybe several men impacting their lives in, in a very negative aspect. Cersei, for example, not the greatest father figure on the planet, okay? It started there and it just kept going. And George R. R. Martin was really attentive to this. And it's not like so blatantly obvious where she has moments where she's like, oh, my father never loved me. It all started in my childhood. You know, but 
you know enough. Like, like he, he doesn't hold back. Um, Hunger Games, I thought, was a really even balance. It is intentionally told through the eyes of a, of a female character. So there is that happening. But then you also have the very aware, uh, aware of these problems. Like with Finnick O'Dare, um, people celebrate him. He's gorgeous. He's a victor. And already he is identified, even through his female gaze, as no, he's just as much of a victim as everybody else. He's a victim of rape. He's a victim of trafficking. He's a victim of just this horrific system. You know, like just really I applauded Suzanne Collins for actually utilizing the female gaze as a way to identify problems that men typically dismiss in in some storytelling. Um, so yeah, so these are all really great examples and also just good books to look into. But I hope this helps you really take a step back and take a look at your own characters and challenge the way that you're writing them. Is there a bias? If you're a woman writer, and I'm guilty of this, is there a bias on how the male characters are represented? I'm going to be completely straightforward. I do not have a great lifetime history with men. Very problematic. And it's not even like personal relationships. It's a lot of family issues where it's just, mm, it really takes forever and a day for me to trust a new male entity who enters my life for any reason, whether it's an employer, whether it's family members, you know, marriage or, you know, whatever, not going to say children, but you know what I mean? Significant other, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but it, it comes out, you know, like, so when I, when I write, and especially in one of the books that I'm actually now both books I'm working on, but one of them that I've, I've been working on for years, kind of set aside right now, um, one of the reasons why I've kind of taken a step away from it is I'm very, very aware that I am not painting my hero in the greatest light. Now, there's also, there's always a, a wonderful aspect of having flawed heroes. You want them to be relatable. But then I had to ask myself, like, okay, how much of this is me wanting people to genuinely see that, no, he is, he's flawed and he's learning and he's going, and how much of this is me just being... <laughs> a venting woman you know like you know things I would never tell my boyfriend volume one you know <laughs> here you go honey here's a character based off you you know what I mean like things like that and then the flip side if you are a male author listening to this how are you writing your women what are you focusing on do you focus more on her physical aspects rather than her intellectual that is a very very common feature in male authors you will see a lot more and a lot lengthier descriptions of the female characters than you will about their intellect or their personalities. Women are just as guilty. I'm just going to say that. Women are just as guilty. I'm just saying it's just a lot more obvious and a lot more easier to slip into if you're a man. And then going back to women. Women, are you giving your female characters the due diligence? Are you? describing them enough, both physically and mentally and emotionally. You're probably doing a fantastic job with the unseen aspects. I will say that that comes out naturally. But have you described them physically enough and accurately enough and also gently enough? Because here's the thing too, when we're women and we write female characters, 
we do imbue a sense of ourselves into them. All of them. It doesn't matter if they're the, the hero or the villain or anything like that. We start to shy back because we feel like we're describing ourselves. And that's a whole other episode for another day if we want to talk to like self-consciousness coming out in writing. But yes, these like I said, these are all things to really think about when we're writing. And then if you're ever really challenged with, okay, how do I know if I'm being fair? How do I know if I'm subconsciously doing a gaze? Um, just revisit the, the articles in Legend of Medusa and really go into that. So it's just such a great example to keep in mind. Um, and there was one other thing I was going to say. <laughs> what is, what is that? Um, oh, yes. Please bear in mind, there is nothing wrong at all with an intentional gaze. And this is something that I've been really looking at doing with the, with the manuscript that kind of stepped away from, like I mentioned. Um, when written appropriately, like when it is very, very clear that it is written to be the perspective of the main protagonist. So going back to, uh, say, uh, Rhapsodic is the first book of the Laura Philosophy series that I'm in love with. Um, it is all first person, present tense. It's, it's very clear that it is through a woman's perspective. So it makes sense to have that female gaze. You don't have to be first person to intentionally have that gaze, but be sure to make it very, very clear that even if it's third person, there is a very particular perspective that the reader is seeing it through. And in my own manuscript, um, I'm challenging myself to kind of divide it up. The first book, because it's, it's going to be serious, I promise. The first book will be through the male gaze. It'll be through the male protagonist. The second book will be through the female gaze, the female protagonist. And I prefer third person typically. So this is a really fun challenge. I wanted to bring that up to, to assure you, you do not have to be the Switzerland of authors. You do not have to constantly worry about the neutral ground. If you feel like there's just no avoiding that sort of biased perspective, then utilize it. Write it into your work, but with the clear intention that it is because this is what the character who is making these observations is seeing. I hope that makes sense. If it does not, feel free to message me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on uh, Facebook. I'm primarily on Instagram. I love Instagram. It's just pretty to look at. Uh, my handle on Instagram is at Nikki Auberkit. Again, I'll put it down in the description. Um, also, feel free to email me if you have any questions or if you have any requests for topics you want me to cover in, in future podcast episodes. My email is Nikki at NikkiAuberkit.com. Um, right now, as I'm recording this, my website is going through a very thorough update. I'm very excited for all the brand new features I'm adding. Um, so it's currently unavailable, but I'm always available. Again, through Instagram, at Nikki Auberkit, or re email Nikki at NikkiAuberkit.com. I hope you guys have a fantastic week. I hope this is really helpful as well as really interesting and entertaining. 
And I look forward to seeing your work. Please let me know if you want me to take a look at what you've got going on so we can talk editing. You've been listening to The Writer's Workshop. If you want to learn more about developing your craft or you're ready for an editor to take a look at your manuscript, head on over to NikkiAuberkit.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram as well for more tips, tricks, and inspiration. And as always, keep on writing.